0: You are listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at agionet slash talks. Good afternoon and welcome. This is wonderful. My name is Julian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult Public Program here. And this is the first um, inaugural event in the Brown Bag Luncheon Talk Series, and we have here Todd Everlake. But before I introduce him, I would like to thank Maxine Blasky, Gaskin and Ira Glaskin, who have generously supported this program, presented in association with The Drawing Room. The Drawing Room is an art salon series, hosted by Maxine and Ira, with the as beneficiary. So we're really grateful, this is a wonderful idea, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. So I hope this is the first of many. was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1963. He's a professional photographer and artist, an artist based in New York City. He's currently photographer at large for Vanity Fair. First celebrated for his photographs of Donald Judd's works and architecture, Edward is best known for his interpretive work, comprising of iconic subject matters such as art, architecture, interiors, design, and portraits. Turning his lens on these subjects, Every presents the disparate images that make up international architecture, landscapes, and society. His vision is united by a minimalist aesthetic, a potent mix of control, symmetry, and proportion. After this talk, there will be a book signing of Tauderui, Empire of Space. And that will be just outside those doors. There will be a chance for a few questions at the end, but right now I'd like to introduce
1: Welcome. Um, thanks for coming. It's exciting, my second time in Toronto. Um, so I. For lack of anything else to do, I thought I would share my book with you. Um, So Rizzoli uh, published this book, and it it was released back in April, and and this book has kind of been... People ask me how long long it took me to make this book, and I say 30 years. (laughs) Because it does represent a 30-year span of time, and it technically took me about three years, so... uh, I'm gonna share some of the uh, some of it with you today. And just before I open the cover, as it were, that's a photograph of the book itself. Um I'll I'll tell you a little bit about what went on behind the scenes. I've been I, I in the introduction you heard that I make a number of uh I photograph a number of of, of disparate subjects, which is very unusual for a photographer because most photographers specialize in a very specific, um, genre, whether it's fashion photography or still life photography, rarely do people go beyond their, their, uh, boundary. And I've always found myself interested in so many things in the world and about the world that, uh, getting to take a photograph of something is a kind of memorializing it or kind of, uh, acknowledging it and elevating it and, uh, I get to photograph a lot of iconic things uh, for Vanity Fair. So it was very difficult for me in the attempt, and, and I made many attempts to make a book, is, is when I started to mix one subject with another, I started, it started not to look right. And luckily one day I was looking at one of my favorite photographers, Walker Evans, and, and after his death, the executor of his estate, John Hill, who's credited in the book, I've never had a conversation with him, but I think he's still around, um, made this extraordinary book of, of Evans' work in which every spread was a pairing of images that had some relationship, and they were both by Walker Evans. So it could be two vanishing street perspectives, it could be two, uh, you know, people in, in, in windows, it could be two doorways. Um, and then sometimes I actually made a list of, of all the themes in the book. And what really inspired me was when this one conceptual idea, it's a photograph of a waitress in a, in a restaurant window shot from the street. And opposite that are three men at a, at a different lunch counter also shot from the street. So it, I interpreted that as the server and the served. And I thought, well, that's a very interesting relationship. And then I realized you could really start to riff on this pairing idea, so the 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 one the one great salvation for me was one was was the revelation that one could mix subjects and the you the pairing was what you were focused on, so you could turn the page and the subject could change, and that was fine so with that in mind i'm going to share a number of spreads from my book, and then basically when i when I said about. This idea of pairing. Uh, what was difficult about it for me is I had 30 years of material to go through, and luckily I've been uh, dig- making digital scans of film for a very long time since maybe. I'm not. Is it, am I crackling or something? What's happening? Is it? Oh, is it? Oh, it's my scarf. But if I take it off, I won't look as good. But I Like this should... Right. Sorry. Thank you. All right, so so uh, if I hadn't been scanning things for a number of years, um I wouldn't have been able to do this book because if you were to look at my archive, my physical film archive, it occupies probably something along the the size of this wall and to go into boxes and to, you know, sift through things it's very very difficult. So I Luckily, been making scans of the best images over the years, so without this mountain of digital material, I couldn't really put this together. And, and once I started to pursue the idea of pairs, it, it became an internal conversation in my head that I would, you know, memories would be triggered, I would think, you know, I started to think very abstractly, and some things were very obvious, but in this particular one, it's one of my favorites. The picture on the left is um, i don 't know can, can you all make out the, the graphic on the the little marquee? it says, It says Diane Arbus, Chanel, and Max Ernst." so that would give you an indication that it 's some kind of cultural institution, except Chanel kind of throws one off. but in reality, this is the Metropolitan Museum of Art on Fifth Avenue in New York City, under renovation, and the picture opposite is is uh, from an assignment I did for Vanity Fair celebrating Steve Wynn's uh, hotel with this extraordinary array of boutiques in front. So as you'll notice, there's a Chanel boutique there. So that became the connection between these two pictures. And of course, you know, I I love the way one's mind can run to talk about how they're not so different from each other institutionally. Um, I've I've been making a a kind of obsessive study of of high modernism for a long time and I'm very fond of going to or getting access to extraordinary things the the building on the left is a Mies van der Rohe lobby from Chicago and the IBM at one IBM Plaza and on the left and on the right is Philip Johnson's house in Dallas called Kentmere and you know uh uh, Philip brought Mies to the States and you know was his first patron and collaborated with him on the Seagram Building and the Four Seasons Restaurant. But it was kind of well known that Philip was a slavish slavishly devoted to Mies' aesthetic vision. So this is kind of taking care of that conversation in one spread. The picture on the left, this is the this is the oldest picture in the book, and I I wanted to be an architect when I was a kid and saw pictures of this of this extraordinary building that most of you probably recognize. It's Frank Lloyd Wright's Fallingwater in Pennsylvania, and I abandoned the very idea that I could be an architect when I saw a photograph of it around the age of eight or nine, and I still don't remember why I could be so intimidated by it, but I ended up not becoming an architect. but uh, I convinced my grandmother I visited her in Cleveland. I was living in Florida later on in my life, or, or after I was 10. I came to visit and I said, let's go to Fallingwater together. And I actually borrowed her Pentax K1000 35mm <coughs> camera and took five pictures of the building. And that's one of them, and I had the negative. And so the building on the right is a friend of mine, Ann Bass, who uh, her then-husband, Sid, commissioned... Paul Rudolph, when they were 28 years old, to build this house for them in Dallas that has this extraordinary relationship with the cantilevers of, of falling water. And I mentioned this to her that I was putting it in my book and making this pair, and she said that um, Rudolph, at the time of the commission for that house, was working on writing about falling water. So it's an extraordinary relationship. And, and one of the things that happened as a result of putting these pairings together is I'm untrained on any level formally. I was kicked out of Cooper Union, a, a, a free art school in New York, after one semester in '85. I'm, I, you know, completely self-taught in things I'm obsessive or interested in. So I started to understand that there were certain relationships between art and architecture, and art and architectural history that uh, time has, and history have kind of overlooked. So I'm, I'm hoping that academics will or uh, uh, people who are interested in these subjects will be able to glean some connection that goes beyond what is officially known. And then, you know, sometimes in the, in the, in the process of making this book, I came up with something like 400 pairs of images. And this, this was a particularly obvious one. It was a common school bus that I photographed in Lawrence, Kansas, in a profile I did on an architect there called Dan Rockhill, who was, and and he had me photograph this bus because this was something that inspired his aesthetic. And on the right is, I think, one of the very last pictures of the Concorde before its last flight. So basically, they're pictures of transportation. And in my... In my... um, In my job, I should say. I think it's a job. <laughs> Taking photographs is a job sometimes. It's a fun job most of the time. Um, I get to meet some extraordinary people. And on the left, I think you all probably recognize a young Hillary Clinton. And this was a portrait the W Magazine commissioned from me in 92, I believe. It was, the, it was the, after the first year of the Clinton administration. And... There was, there was the, a big controversy that first year because Hillary was very involved in, in trying to renovate the health care system in the States. And there was, she came under a lot of fire for being uh, Miss, Mrs. Vice President, she was called, and among other unpleasant things. <coughs> and what was interesting about this picture was they told me that they were trying to soften Mrs. Clinton's image. Her 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 official you know, aides and people, and this was their first attempt to kind of roll her out as, as a pleasant, uh, sweet you know entertaining first lady housewife, and it didn't quite come off. <laughs> but she does have a they, she does have a certain kind of femininity here that that a lot of in a lot of images that she didn't have, because she came across as rather. Uh, masculine sometimes. But I was told in advance that she was very self-conscious about her cabs. And so I made a very deliberate effort to conceal her cabs and a number of years later I got <coughs> a call to come and live with the Clintons in the White House to photograph it so they could remember how they lived there and it was as a result of, of my taking care of this detail. <laughs> And on the right is a is a, is a portrait of, of the very famous uh, Florence Knoll who was who's now called Florence Knoll Bassett after a man she married at the turn uh, at the probably around 1965 or 70 but she was known for making every or she was the creative creative director of Knoll the famous furniture company and as well as a designer in her own right but she commissioned uh Saren, Saarinen Mies Mies was her teacher at Cranbrook, um, and in this picture it was from a series I did in Vanity Fair called Modern's Masters, and it was a celebration of the last of the living modernists. And the extraordinary thing about, her, about this portrait of her is, is, is I learned of her, of her status as a living person, and it inspired me to think of this concept for this story. And she had kind of disappeared and became very private and only agreed to be photographed because a friend of hers, uh, Frank Stanton, (coughs) who commissioned uh, Saarinen to do the Black Rock Building, the CBS Building in New York, had agreed to participate and as a result she did. And one of the extraordinary things about this picture is I asked her in advance if she could send me a, a photograph of her living room. because. I never know how people live, and especially designers of her caliber, who knows she lived, might not have lived with her furniture, and that's a sofa of her own design she's touching. But she sent me a photograph much like this one, a kind of snapshot, as she sketched her figure into the ground of that Jack Youngerman painting, in essence designing her portrait in advance. So I went along with it. and. On the left is a very rare photograph of the the painter side Twombly. That was taken during or a day or two before his opening at the Hermitage in Saint Petersburg. He was the second living artist to ever have a show there, and Larry Gagosian, his dealer and mine, threw a party for him at Catherine the Great Summer Palace, and this was this was the veranda of that building. And for some reason, I saw, you know, uh, I don't know how, if you, if any of you know about Cy Twombly's work. It references classicism and history. And I saw the the history of Cy Twombly's world in this in this environment, and that he clearly had nothing to do with. And I asked him to stand there for me. And I had the great honor of it being that portrait being shown at his MoMA. Memorial a few weeks ago. He died not three weeks ago, which is another extraordinary thing about what I get to do. Is there are a number of people in my book who who are no longer living, and now I'm very happy that that many of them have a have have been you know uh, memorialized in I think a, a nice way. And on the right is just an extraordinary uh, relationship with the portrait i took of the artist, architect david Adjay, the famous uh, british architect and this is a temporary pavilion but the the relationship is fairly obvious and then bizarre things started to happen as i was making the pairings of the book i started to see in pairs i started to see the re- the, the the this relationship between things in the world and and a picture i took on the right many years ago is of the The rotunda in Thomas Jefferson's University of Virginia, which is dating, I think, from 1787 or something. I forget the precise date. But then a friend of mine had an opportunity to visit CERN, the uh, uh, the large hadron collider in Switzerland. And I had the opportunity to photograph that for Vanity Fair. And that picture on the left is the interior of a hadron collider from 1958 or something. (laughs) <laughs> and this is a portrait of a woman called uh, Dorothy Hershon. She was, she was an heiress to the first fortune on some level, and I can't remember precisely why, but the thing that I love about this picture is I went out to her house in Great Neck, which is a fancy, very posh enclave in Long Island, New York. And she was one of these tough-as-nails tough as broad types. And I love that she smoked, she chain-smoked the whole time, she was fabulous. But the thing that I love about this picture is she's sitting in front of her portrait by Matisse. And that is something that I'm not going to come across again, I don't think. And then on the right is uh, the Picasso historian John Richardson's bedroom. And the thing that I love about the relationship of the picture, these subtle things that happen between her shoe and the elephant foot, <laughs> the the uh, the sort of uh, recline of the, the chaise longue on the right. And instead of uh, Matisse, we have his portrait by Andy Warhol. And that's a very subtle relationship, but I really like the, the connections there. And, you know, when you make a 300-page book, you have to have a little variety, because if it, had been, if it had been too much the same, it would have this dull tone to it. Uh, on the right is a portrait or a photograph I made <coughs> when I was living in the White House, and I took that picture from the roof of the White House, and President Clinton had gone to Kosovo that day, and Marine One, that took him to Andrews Air Force Base, to Air Force One, came back, and there was a note on my bed that there was going to be Marine One practice that day. So the helicopter alighted and, and came back to the ground about 300 times. <laughs> and at the time, if you can see in the distance, the, the Washington Monument was, was clad by, um, temporarily clad in a, uh, a Michael Graves design that he designed for it to be restored from the inside, inside that scaffolding, which made it quite beautiful. And then on the left is an extraordinary opportunity. How I came across this on the Mall in Washington during the Obama inauguration is still beyond me, but there was a strange little barrier that had some plants on it, but in the picture it has the effect of a cornfield. And in my, this presidential sequence, if you will, I, one, of the, one of the most uh, awe-inspiring moments was when I was in the White House, and this was that same day the helicopter was taking off and landing from the lawn. I had the opportunity to shoot the Oval Office because the president was gone, and when he's gone, it's pretty, pretty um, inactive there. And... It's a, it's not a, it's a room that probably two of them would fit in the size of this room. It's not a terribly big room, but it's a very complex room because to shoot an oval every there's no way to make an oval oval symmetrical. So I struggled with that. <coughs> and I had this incredible awareness of the burden that I needed to make every book legible, every single detail for every historian that could ever look at this picture to decipher and know and, and be clear about what was in the room because all those things become important. <clears throat> and I felt like something was missing. I was in there for three hours or so and I felt, I'd, I'd even photographed the ceiling, which you'll see in a bit. And I felt, I had this nagging feeling something was missing and I couldn't figure it out. And it was like, And I was trying to, you know, I have to run through my catalog of historical images and photo history and art history. And there's the very famous picture of John Kennedy Jr. going through the front of the false front on the desk that, that was the same one Clinton had, blah, blah, blah. And then I realized, oh, wait, it's so obvious. And I went over behind the desk and I pushed his chair away. I put the camera where his head would be and I photographed his point of view of the room. And I had never seen an image of that. And that's the picture on the right. And there's one extraordinary detail that, that um, if you notice, the uh, the portrait, the black and white portrait on the desk, front and center, there's a, there's a little Latin plaque on Lucite, or supposedly pig Latin, or bastard Latin, it says "illegitimi non-carborundum. And I asked someone what that meant. It apparently it means don't let the bastards get you down. <laughs> and on the left, what would appear to be the same room is actually the replica, the full-scale replica of, of the Clinton Oval Office in his library in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I, I was struck because... I had never been to a presidential library before, but apparently Clinton's is the only one in history to have a full-scale one-to-one replica. And God knows how much it costs to re, you know, remake all these things. But <clears throat> the one striking difference between them, except for a couple of objects on the table, because I'm sure some of them went with him to his office in Harlem, where he's still active, and it's this little clay sculpture here. And it says, Dad. And it was made by Chelsea when she was probably three or four. You know, one of those things kids make, you know? So in, in, in real life, it was Don't Let the Bastards Get You Down. And in the, the edited historical portrayal, it's a clay sculpture by Chelsea that says, Dad. This picture on the left is the bedroom in the nose of, of the 747 that when the president is flying on, it is called Air Force One. And I got a last-minute call. I I had been half-expecting to get to go on Clinton's last flight, which was from Washington to Little Rock, back to his hometown. I think I got a call at 6 o'clock that I was expected on the plane at 9 the next morning, so I had to make my way from New York. and went to the store and rented the movie Air Force One. And was very struck by how authentic that movie was when I actually got on board the real plane. And I asked the steward about it, the guy who, like the major domo of the plane. And he said that Wolfgang, um, his name is Wolfgang, and I'm blanking on the director of that movie. Peterson, yeah. Apparently Wolfgang Peterson and uh, who was the star of it? Harrison. Harrison Ford. Both were on together and they were allowed to take notes. No, they weren't. They were They were not allowed to take pictures, that so they could take notes. And apparently, his visual, his visual um, note taking was so precise that I felt like I was in the movie. <laughs> and every, every and, and Clinton basically always had a Diet Coke in his hand. So I, in every picture that you know transfers from one president to another in this space, uh, I would put a Diet Coke there to kind of signify it as Clinton. Clinton time. And then on the right is a, a, and this became a very important part of my book is this uh, ex, uh, pr- uh, project I did about looking at my family and their interiors and portraits of them and their homes. And this is from my grandparents' house in Houston, Texas. So basically, they're just rooms with twin beds and murals. And this is. Uh, uh, a pairing of, of portraits of artists, and one of them is uh, that's me, I think. Sorry, no, that's not me. <laughs> it's, me. it's Maxine. Sorry? Uh, on, the, on the left is a portrait I was asked to do by my friend Stefano Tonki, who was at Esquire magazine at the time, and he asked, he asked different people to ask who, or to be photographed with someone that they thought of as their hero. And the woman standing up is the artist Jenny Holzer, who's famous for her. LED light projections and message aphorism things, and on and her hero was Louise Bourgeois, who's perched uh, quite petitely in that chair. And the picture on the right are the artists uh, Ellen Phelan and Joel Shapiro, and that that um, when I showed them the the when this this portrait was published in House and Garden, they said, that picture said too much about their relationship. (laughs) (laughs) And this this is is another another example of how the book started to make me look at the world in a different way. And The the picture on the right is, I have a a house up in upstate from New York in a town called West Cornwall, Connecticut. It's about two hours from New York and I'm extraordinarily lucky to have this very beautiful sanctuary. It's on the top of a little mountain, and all I see are trees and sky. So I've taken many versions of this picture on the right over time. It's just from my the front sliding glass door. It's a glass house. And I, started, I start to see things in the world differently, like I said, in making the book. And in, I was in the Cleveland Museum of Art two summers ago, and recognized my landscape in this Frederick Church painting in which I took a detail of the painting itself. Because everything is legitimate for a a camera, especially when you can carry around a camera with you all the time, you know? And then funny things started to happen. This is uh, Jeff Koons' very famous puppy on the right that belongs to Peter Brandt, the art collector in Greenwich, Connecticut. And this is the only puppy in private hands. There are three of them. And... I was driving down the Sawmill Parkway one day back to the city from my house and I was, I had very often to put the camera out of the sunroof of the car, do uh, just hand hold things randomly if I see something that catches my fancy. And there's this extraordinary few miles on the Sawmill Parkway in the, in the middle of the summer where these, it's called Virginia Creeper and it's this monstrous vine that consumes the entire landscape but that makes kind of animal-like forms. And this was just a random snapshot that came. So one, I I call this uh, puppy, Jeff Koons, Peter Brand, Greenwich, Connecticut, and on the left I call it naturally occurring puppy. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a pair, uh, or this is a, a Lachaise uh, sculpture in MoMA's garden on the left that has been there for probably from its inception as when it was conceived as a garden. I think it's never left there. And on the right is a pic, uh, an edition of the same sculpture that Martha Stewart acquired a, a number of years ago. And this is a photograph of her, her Lachaise in, at our house in Maine called Skylands. And what's, what is extraordinary to me about this picture is it has the effect of someone being thrown off a cliff. And this was this photograph was taken many years before Martha Stewart was thrown off of the. <laughs> the, the and this one has a very. Um, it wouldn't be obvious at first, but both of these are absolutely artificial landscapes. The first, the the one on the left is, or I'll go to the one on the right first. The one on the right was, the the folly Steve Wynn built in front of his uh, his hotel that. Has completely. He must have spent, I, I God knows how much to achieve this effect of of a of a thing in a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> and on the left, I was showing this picture. It, 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 I had a show. I had a show in L.A. in Beverly Hills at Gagosian a few years ago, and I showed this picture. And both the the one on the left, quite large, th- at least this big. And if you look carefully, you can see there are. These things happening in the trunk of the tree, they're actually animals carved into it. And this is at Animal Kingdom at Disney World. And this is a 14-story high man-made tree. And people, I can't describe the number of people who came up to me and said, is that picture real? Because everything that's happening in front of of it is real. And I said, well, of course, it's a photograph. Of course it's real. (laughs) Which is... A big lesson: you shouldn't necessarily accept photographs as real. Uh, this is this is something that came from this, the grandmother I talked about, whose camera I borrowed when I was sixteen. Is this very extraordinary woman who who wrote a book or designed a book based on a friend of her who was a, hers who was a landscape architect who had died, and my grandmother was a self-taught draftsman and she redrafted all of her gardens and it was published by a the University Press of New England called Herb Garden Design. And I was given a commission to make a portrait of Martha Stewart in 1990 or 91 when she started her magazine, Martha Stewart Living. And I called my mother in Florida. I said, oh, I think this woman, Martha, she's quite famous. What's she famous for? And she goes, oh, you know, the, the whole thing about how, you know, with whatever it was, I was, you know, given given this bit of information by my mother. And she said, oh, by the way, you know, she wrote that book called called Gardening, and she talks about your grandmother's book in it. So when I met her, I told Martha, I said, this is my grandmother. Oh, I want to meet your grandmother, she said. We we flew to Ohio about a month later to meet her together. And this is a picture of of my grandmother's garden when she was preparing for Martha's visit some 20-odd years ago. And she's now 98, and happily still alive but lost her sight and now this is a picture i took of the same garden 2 years ago and you know and and then it started to become these and this is when i really reached this kind of beautiful moment with the book where it started to become about time and memory and emotion and my connections and you know my memory of making the picture on the left and that occasion and how sad it was to be in the same place with her in the house. And she had no idea her garden looked like that. And how, hor- you know, how horrified she would have been had she been able to see it. And so this is the, se- the literal sequence in the book. The- that goes from that to Martha Stewart. The picture on the left is Martha Stewart when I celebrated her ascent to being the first female billionaire, self-made billionaire in Vanity Fair. It was called Empire by Martha the article. And these were in her brand new offices in uh, the Star at Lehigh building, <coughs> which is in, which are in Chelsea on 26th Street. It's an extraordinarily large building that looks like a big ship. And when her company went public, she became a billionaire. And then <coughs> if you look carefully in that picture, in the background, you'll see the, the, the twin towers. <clears throat> and then I was asked by Life Magazine, and Martha, Martha and I, because of this relationship with my grandmother, she and I have always had a kind of very special bond, and we're friends, and she invites invited me to her 70th birthday party in Maine a few weeks ago. I wrote a letter on her behalf to the judge asking her that she not put her in jail. Um, and then I was asked by Life Magazine after she got out of jail, and of course... That must have made some news in Canada. Is Martha Stewart broadcast here? It's yeah, she's yeah, yeah. she's as known here as yeah, she is, yeah. right? So everyone knows how dramatic that whole story was, and so this is a portrait of her after she got a just after she got out of jail. And I wanted to make a kind of I, and this was a a prescient thing before I thought about pairing making a book of pairings. But I made a deliberate pairing between these two images because I wanted to see put her in more or less the same situation because you could literally compare them. And sadly, the dogs aren't there, and neither are the Twin Towers. So in a way, it, it, makes a very, uh, it makes a beautiful segue, the garden picture to this picture, and they're both about the same things. Memory, time loss, destruction, age. But Martha looks extraordinary. Uh, I, I think, and many people comment, she looks better in the second picture. Jailed it or good. <laughs> and this uh, picture on the right is uh, Jeff Koons had a had an exhibition at Versailles a few a few summers ago, and I went and made some pictures of that and him there. I made a lot of portraits of Jeff over over the years, and my. Uh, At my house in Connecticut, my boyfriend has a garden. I'm not a big gardener, but he's an obsessive gardener. And last year, a a bushel of 60 or so tomatoes came in from the garden, and they were all heirloom tomatoes. And this one runt tomato made it onto the counter, and I exclaimed, oh my God, it's Jeff Koons' balloon flower. (laughs) And so I deliberately held that one back. It didn't go into the tomato sauce that was being made of the tomatoes. And I photographed it the next day knowing it would pick up the light in just the same way. So again, this this was how I started to be conditioned to see the world. And then the next sequence... My, the same boyfriend I'm, I've just referred to designed the book, and we've been together 24 years, so he had to ask no nothing about the history of any picture. So he intuited all these pairings I made and sequenced them in a way where it becomes a narrative and a story and, an, and a biography. Um, and so we go from that picture to a portrait I did of Jeff, also for Vanity Fair. <clears throat> and right before I made this very set-up tableau in his home with a p- painting by his son Ludwig, who was kidnapped... By Chicholina, the wife, when he was two and has never returned. Uh, Jeff decided he wanted to have Andy Warhol represented in the in the in the portrait somehow, and uh, ran upstairs and came back with this catalog that says pop art on it. And the picture on the right is from my mother's pantry in Jacksonville, Florida, and and the Andy Warhol is there in the Campbell soup can. <laughs> And since this is a box lunch day, I thought I would show my lunch on Air Force One. (laughs) For which I had to pay $4 And I wrote a check out to Air Force One. Because the president couldn't pay for me because it would have been seen as a political favor. But you can see it wasn't very appealing. And then on the right is from a series I did on uh, vintage hi-fi equipment, which kind of was about the optimism of the the uh, post-World War II period. And then that's the ceiling of the Oval Office on the left, and a detail from a, one of the few remnants left from Morris Lapidus in the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami Beach. And then the picture on the right from a series I've been making from my garden about flowers and decay and making these digital Rorschachs. That's what I call them. They're, they're one image that I mirror and mirror again, but they become Rorschachs. And then I was asked by a Japanese publisher if I could do a small book. And I happened to be at this one gay bar in Dallas one night where they had a drag beauty pageant. And I photographed about 200 drag queens and found... I've been making these flowers for a long time and found a mate for every single drag queen. (laughs) And Andy Warhol did a a series called uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, which were about transvestites. One of my favorite series he did that most people don't know. He didn't do a lot of them. But the cumulative effect of these two pictures is it's an homage to Andy's flowers, Andy's Rorschach's, and Andy's ladies and gentlemen. And that's another from that series. And in the, in the narrative, we go now to Andy Warhol's, the underpants Andy Warhol had on arm when he died that I got to photograph at the time capsules in Pittsburgh at his museum. And that's a portrait of Cy Newhouse's uh, Orange, Maryland painting, which was uh, a, the thing that turned the art world on its head when he paid Larry Gagosian $14 million for that about 15 years ago, that changed the entire course of the art world. And then the picture on the left is is from that same series from Vanity Fair. I was. In which Florence Knoll appeared, called Modern's Masters. And the portrait on the left is Oscar Niemeyer, the great modernist from Brazil, who was photographed in his studio in, in Rio. And the drawings on the wall are all his, by his own hand of his famous projects. And then in, in this picture, he is 98. He's now 104 and still working. <laughs> and on the right is Philip Johnson's last portrait in the iconic glass house. And the thing I'm most proud of about that story. It had Philip Johnson, Oscar Niemeyer, Phyllis Lambert, Ezra Stoller, Julie Schulman, Dieter Rams, uh, Pierre Koenig, Frank Stanton, Herman Zoff, and I believe one other person, but it was called Moderns Masters. I in it, uh, under the title of the, the story, it said the combined age of the people in the story you're about to see is over 1,000 years of age. And these are some images from Oscar Niemeyer's work in Brasilia. And the portrait... Uh, the, I keep calling my pictures portraits. Well, I think of all my pictures as portraits, actually, so it's a, a weird... It's not an unusual slip I'm making because I think, of, I think of this as a portrait of that building and a portrait of that stair. But the picture on the left is... Uh, is or the con- congressional... One's called the Congress and one's called the Senate. And what looks like something in a park are actually two enormous forms that hold 300-seat auditoriums inside. And then the stair on the left, on the right, is um, something very commonly seen in, in Brasilia. And, and Niemeyer was both the architect and the, he made all the zoning laws because it was all being made up as it was being built. So he wasn't obligated to put a rail there. And a friend of mine who who runs uh, every every six different museums in Berlin kind of became a, con, a consulting aesthetic godfather. And and these two pictures were in the book, but not together. And he said, "You have to put those pictures together." So this is thanks to my friend Udo Kittelmann who who put these together. And this is oh by the I, I should point this out. The picture on the right is is the image on the cover of the book, and it's from, it's a it's a a fetishized detail of a of a decaying de, de, uh, destroyed Barcelona chair in a by Mies van der Rohe in a Barcelona or a Brazilian pavilion by Niemeyer, and there were four of these set up in a museum that was some seemed somehow embarrassing to the state of Brazil that they would put them there, but. On the left is Iggy Pop, who's in the very pristine new space of the Mercer Hotel, the bar under it called the Sub Mercer. But one cannot deny the relationship between Mr. Pop's uh, face and the Barcelona chair. <laughs> oh, it's time! I, I think. I think. I let me just go through if there's anything more important here because I could keep. Oh, this is a great one. Donald Judd on the left, and Tom Ford's doghouse on the right. And with that, I'll close. Aww. So I think, I think it's time for questions and answers, right? Or I'll do my best to answer. I'll agree to the questions part. Anyone want to an- ask me anything? Can you talk really loud so everyone can hear? Yes. Maybe stand up and... Because I can barely hear you there. photos, and the ones that you took before, you don't have that much of uh, Photoshop, or do you? I, I, have, I, very little, I use very Photoshop in a very subtle way. If I, if I showed you the 4x5 the, the transparency and the image, you, you wouldn't see a difference. I tweak, I tweak little things, like I'll make the line a little straighter, you know, because when you use a camera, there's a level maybe, but it's not, it never is quite level. The Photoshop allows me to heighten color a little, but I don't generally merge pictures or.
0: So when you Photoshop, you, like in some of them that you definitely work a lot, like you did, like the ones that you did, like the flowers?
1: Well, it's just flowers that could just copy and paste. Okay. That's it. Twice, question. three times. Thank you. They seem very hype, hyper manipulated, but they're not. It's copy and paste mirrored. Yeah? You said you had no formal training, so
0: did you learn at all how to use the camera, or did you go to any kind of... I, the
1: only class I ever had was at Junior College in Jacksonville, Florida. It was black and white 101, and I learned how to develop film and make a crappy print, and no one ever told me how to make it better. And after I got kicked out of art school, I started getting opportunities, and I met some people who... Hooked me up with Bruce Weber's former assistants, who were super technical, and I learned a lot about film and how to use more technical things. And so that was a big thing for me: is is I I got the benefit of that knowledge without getting the burden of someone telling me how to think about what, because they tell you that in art school, they tell you how to think, you know. So no one ever did that. This
0: one back there.
1: So you, you had said that when you we were, you know, these were original photographs, and you just found the pairings for
0: the book. Now that you've done this book, has it changed your perception of how you photograph things? Did oh yeah.
1: Oh up? completely. I think I think it's conditioned the way I see and think about the world now. I see in pairs now. I see I see <laughs> relationships. It's 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 bizarre how it can how it changed because I worked on making this for, these pairings for eight months. Yes. If
0: I can just make a comment instead of a question, I got rid of all my camera equipment in the last year or so because I decided I was a disaster because I could never get what was in my head onto the, the camera. Right. And I just want to say thank you because you just made me realize that you know what, maybe I should just start looking at the world in a different way. Well, <laughs> well, it, over
1: again. well, it did. And I think you know. saw I mean, the one thing about a digital camera, you know, the, the, the sophistication of this Canon G12 that costs 500 bucks, uh, ha- uh, most of the pictures I refer to as, you know, the, the, the tomato, the flowers, these are all made with this camera and going back to the G7 version, of the very first version. But the extraordinary thing, you take a picture and you see it right away. You can confirm right away what, if, if, it, if it is what is in your head. And you get a beautiful image out of it. So maybe you should get something like this. But film cameras, I don't know why people would bother anymore. It's too much of a hassle. Anyone else? Yeah? Doesn't matter, I'll get to her. Yeah. What do you
0: do
1: to put them at ease? Oh I tell them how gorgeous they are and stuff. I, f- I flatter them. You know, I lie.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but generally, the people, m- many of the people I photograph, I've conceived of the, of the idea of making the photograph of them, and at a certain point, they either know that in advance, or they know it while I'm there. Like, for instance, when I made a portrait of Niemeyer, I, I had already photographed Brasilia and had an art show about it with Robert Palladori in New York. It was called Two Visions of Brasilia, the show, in 98. And so when I came to make Mr. Niemeyer's portrait in 95 or 97, no, 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 sorry, it was 2004. So it was six years after this. I brought him a print, that print of the domes from the Congress that I showed. And he was so taken by it, and he said, my friend, and he has a strange uh, Portuguese-English, and he goes, my friend, I've seen 1,000 attempts at this image, but I've never seen it succeed before now. And he agreed to go an hour's drive to the original house he designed to have his portrait made, and he never goes beyond a one-block radius between his house and his apartment. And his staff couldn't understand that he had agreed to do this. So he was so flattered by my... And at one point he goes, how do you know so much about me?
0: <laughs>
1: because I become I become so obsessive about these things that I'm interested in that I become a kind of... I could qualify to get, you know, honorary PhDs in some of these (laughs) things, you know.
0: Um, So obviously the problem would be the pairings, and you referred at the beginning to Walker Evans and the served and um,
1: the served and the 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 server. The server, the served, and the server.
0: At times, a compositional relationship, and so. But I guess I wonder. There must be moments where one would be tempted to editorialize or to create overarching uh, connections between the two. And I, and I guess, I
1: guess, how? Well, do the you con- the connections sense? now that they've been put in a book, I I very often write when I when I dedicate the book, I say, "Welcome to your empire of space." And there, as you notice, there are no captions on the pages, and these are the, these are the. Images from the pages. So, my goal was to make it an experience where you would look at it and you would have to process the relationship between them. And if you didn't know what they were, you're welcome to make it up. And I wanted to become personal that way. I wanted, like a child looks at a book and their fantasy mind runs. I wanted, I want everyone to see it that way. And a a friend of mine told me the other night, who's a filmmaker, (coughs) who has the book, he has a seven-year-old kid who who, um, I'm going to see if I can find this picture, this picture of Mickey, (coughs) Mickey Amalt on the right. He said, uh, thanks for destroying my son's entire fantasy about Disney because he said, Daddy, that's a really dark picture of a a happy thing. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I was so thrilled to hear that. I was like, wow, like, it's a pretty dark picture of a happy thing. But a seven-year-old got that, you know? But no, it's totally about, I I, I want it to become really personal. You can find relationships in them that I wouldn't even understand, you know. So one last question. Sure. Alex. I was wondering about your audience instead about people and portraits and architecture and portraits. It's all the same. I'm wondering if there's a difference in the way you approach people and the way you approach architecture and if there should be a difference at all. Not really, because in the end, it's all about... Uh, objects in space, yeah. in, in essence. And it's all about trying to find... I mean, with people, I'm really trying as much as I can to make a story that says something about that person in that one image. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because I'm coming into it generally knowing something about them and it's in their personal environment, I'll move things around, I'll take things away, I'll add things that elevate some sense of the history of that person in, in, in a way, in an effort to describe them as precisely as I can. In the architecture. Well, the architecture is a little looser because it, it, that's according to the condition, the conditions of light, time, time of year, angle of light. Like, for instance, I, I, I had a tour uh, earlier with uh, Matthew, the director of this museum, and I photographed a lot of Frank's work over time, Frank Gehry's work, <clears throat> and I, there's the space that how do you call the space? Galleria Italia. The gallery Italia that I've never seen a space of Franks remotely like that, and it was one of the most beautiful things I ever saw. Mm-hmm. And um,
0: fabulous at night.
1: Yes. And I'm here in a circumstance where I have gray flat light, but hopefully on my next trip here I'll make a glorious picture of that. In summer. Yeah, I think so, right? So thank you all for coming. I hope you uh, enjoyed it. God, I
0: want to thank you so much. You have an extraordinary eye. Your stories are amazing. And I agree with the here that what I love about these things is that it actually changes the way we see the Oh, good.
1: Work. Thank you. you no, know, it does. It's fabulous. Everyone should go out and get a camera. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening to
0: this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.